We've been having a little mini-series going on Providence. So today I want to look at Providence and the work of Christ. Providence and the work of Christ. I enjoy talking about God's providence, His overruling authority and sovereignty, His rule, uh, His reign. Remember the word reign is in the word sovereignty. Uh, He reigns supreme over all of His creation. I enjoy talking about divine providence, particularly in, in relation to blessed events. Maybe you do too. But what about providence over the most vicious and cruel acts ever done by mankind. Do you enjoy talking about that as well? And uh, hopefully you know which acts I'm referring to. I'm, I'm referring to the highest crime of human insurrection and murder that has ever been committed. Today we're going to look at providence over the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a lot of the work of Christ. It's interesting, at the crucifixion of Christ, it seems as if hell itself has, has broken loose and, and has helped all of these earthly powers to frustrate the very plan of God. That's the way some people look at it. But what does the Bible itself say? What does God actually think about this? So you want to examine the testimony of Scripture regarding this, this very necessary event and, the, and all the other events surrounding Christ's redemptive work. So let's start with this. Number one, I've got actually four main headings for you to look at today, but number one, preserving providence throughout the life of Christ. I don't know if you thought about this, but prior to the crucifixion of Christ, Christ's enemies actively attempted to kill him several different times. Uh was was Satan behind all that? Was Satan trying to stop Christ going to the cross? Possibly. From each of those attempts, providence protected him. God protected him until man's desire actually synchronized with God's very timing. In other words, what I'm saying is God's sacrifice there of his own son came in the fullness of time. When that time had arrived, Jesus Christ became the sacrifice. Well, let's just look at a couple examples in Scripture here. Of We see this pervert, per, preserving providence. Number one, God delivered Christ from Herod's slaughter. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Verse 13, Matthew 2. These are the words of the living God. He says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. The prophet said this, Out of Egypt I called my son. So you'll see the, uh, the, the reference there in verse 15 is referring, If you, maybe some of your Bibles have this at the bottom. Uh, the prophet Hosea mentions that. Jeremiah mentions that that particular reference so 
prophecy was fulfilled here right before our very eyes. So God could have used all kinds of varieties of, of miraculous means, ways to protect Jesus Christ, even through Herod's slaughter there. But what did God do? Sometimes God just works in just plain old mundane ways. He used the very mundane, a, a non-miraculous means to protect, to protect Jesus. God just sends, sends one of his messengers, an angel, to, or just he gives them this message to go to Egypt. <laughs> right? It's not always a, a super spectacular way that God works. In fact, it's often a very mundane and non-miraculous way. But nevertheless, we see God delivered Christ from Herod's slaughter. Number two, God delivered Christ into the hands of the Jews in his time. Exactly the time he wanted this to take place. So turn over to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. So we have the plot to kill Jesus. Of course, they think they're in control all the time. The religious leaders of Israel and the Romans. Who really is in control here? Well, look, uh, Matthew 26 verse 1. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be, be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Stop there for now. So notice there's this plot to kill Jesus. The Jews, even before this time, had already decided to murder the Lord. But they decided not to seize Christ on the same day as Passover. However, it's interesting, God forced their hand here to fulfill the wicked designs in his own timing. It wasn't their timing, but God's timing. It's a miraculous, a divine design, if you will, that Jesus was called the Passover lamb, and that the Passover lamb of God would be taken and slain at Passover. Of all the times of year that, that this could have happened, and it, it wasn't sooner, it wasn't later. It was at Passover that the Passover lamb would be slain. So that is by divine design that that took place. So it's interesting, as a lot of the Jews themselves were, were slaughtering lambs in Jerusalem, Jesus was slain. Number three, God delivered Christ into Pilate's hand. Now for this one, you need to turn over to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, please look at verse 10 of John 19, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me, question, 
Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So here's the Roman authority of the land designated by Caesar. It's interesting, Jesus bluntly informs the Roman leader here, Pilate, that he had no authority over him whatsoever. Where did the authority come from? Only the authority here was granted by God to Pilate to do what had already been determined to be done. Jesus knew that, of course. Pilate doesn't recognize that. So Jesus here is claiming something amazing. That God is over all. And that all earthly governors and rulers and authorities can act only as God permits them to act. By the way, it's good for us to remember that. Because <laughs> we also have earthly authorities over us. The Bible tells us we're to submit to our earthly authorities. But don't forget, they rule on God's behalf. Their authority comes from God. It's interesting, one day I went in to see my MP. I wanted to share some things from Scripture so he could hopefully see things from Scripture's point of view, God's point of view. He didn't appreciate, he didn't seem to really appreciate me uh, pointing out, because I started the conversation with my MP by pointing out to him that, you know, the Bible tells me that I'm to submit to you. However, you have no authority except the authority that God gives to you. He's like sitting in his chair across, where's move? It was kind of a weird conversation. He looked really uncomfortable. And then we proceeded to talk about some important issues that was on my heart, things like abortion and other things. But it's good for, uh, good for us to be reminded who really has the authority. So it, I mean, you think about it. Is it any less true today than it was at Jesus, than Jesus' day? Of course not. Uh, and from this claim, we can draw a lot of comfort and a lot of confidence in our own day. Things have not changed. We have the same God who reigns supreme over all of his creation. So, that's some of the providence we can see in Christ's life and his work. But I want to particularly focus on in that, that, that last week, the Passion Week, if you will. Let's look at some providential fulfillment of prophecy in particular during that, that last week of Christ's life. Number one, Christ entered Jerusalem on a donkey. That was no accident. <laughs> uh, so you can read about it in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And then I want, I want you to see, I'll show you the Old Testament scriptures where that comes from. But look at Matthew 21. Matthew 21, this is the triumphal entry of Christ coming into Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, 
and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place because it was all an accident, right? Just a, you know, no, of course not. (laughs) It wasn't an accident. Notice again, the scripture says it was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Here's what the prophet said. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you'll notice the uh, Matthew doesn't mention which prophet there, but I'll put it on the screen here for you. There, it's coming from Zechariah nine, verse nine. It says something very similar to what Matthew says. Which here's what it says: Zechariah nine nine. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So. This was designed by God. There's so many Old Testament promises that were, that were made. And we see those promises being fulfilled in Christ. This is one of many. Here's another one. Number two, Christ was betrayed by a friend. He was betrayed by a friend. Keep your finger there in, in Matthew. We'll be back there next. But look at John 13. John 13, verse 18. John 13, verse 18 says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, if you read the whole context, Jesus is is there washing his disciples' feet. He knows that uh, his friend to betray him was Judas, and he ends up sending Judas out eventually. But uh, there's a few. uh, Here's one. Psalm 41, verse 9, references this event. It says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So that was foreshadowing Christ, of course, who would be betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas. Number three, again, you can turn back to Matthew 27. We see that Christ was sold for a specific amount of money, 30 pieces of silver. And the Bible also mentions that particular silver, that money would 
be used later to buy potter's field. Look at Matthew 27, verse 3. Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Notice who's directing all this? The Lord. <laughs> uh, so Jeremiah is, is mentioned there, but uh, there's other places mentioned. Here's another one I'll give to you. Zechariah 11, verse 12 says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. The Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. So as you can see, there's a few places in Scripture where that prophecy is mentioned. Alright, so back to John. We see number four here that Christ's body was pierced, but not broken. It was pierced, but not broken. Another prophecy that was filled in Christ. Look at John 19, verse 31. John 19, verse 31. The Bible says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Moving on. To verse 37, it says, verse 35, He who saw it was has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place. Why? Why did that happen? That the Scripture might be fulfilled. Here's what Scripture says, Old Testament, Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. So, again, Zechariah 12, 
verse 10 is one of those places that, that John is, is, is quoting from. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. So Christ was pierced by a, by a spear instead of having his legs broken. And the process fulfilled Old Testament Scripture. Well, let's look at another infamous character in Scripture who also fulfills prophecy. And this is in relation to Christ. So let's see, let's look at Satan, who is actually described as a tool of providence in the crucifixion. First of all, I want you to see here uh, that Satan sought to hinder Christ's redemptive mission. Christ had a mission. You can read the Gospel accounts. Christ put it different ways. Uh, for example, Matthew says that Christ came to save his people from their sins. Uh, Mark says Jesus didn't come just to lord it over people and, and to, to be lord, but he came as a servant to ransom people. So the, the scriptures put it in different ways. That was his mission. But Satan sought to hinder Christ's mission. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verse 21. We'll read 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. <laughs> but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' response here is interesting to Peter, isn't it? He knows he's talking to Peter. What means did Satan, Satan use for this very sinister plan? Satan's trying to stop Christ. Well, he does it through Peter, obviously, here. But what did Peter do? Peter rebukes the Lord. How did Christ respond? He identifies Satan here as the source of Peter's protest. Very interesting. Jesus knows who's behind Satan's, or, or sorry, Peter's very words, this plan. And by the way, too often our own ideas and our designs trample over what we sometimes profess. And just as Peter professed, professed Jesus to be God, remember earlier he actually called him the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then we see Peter kind of arguing with his own words, just as we do sometimes. We, we might say something, but our actions and words later on actually deny what we said earlier. How does that happen? Well, when we profess the Lord Jesus Christ and then we go and disobey His Word and we resist His leading in our lives, we're resisting. We're disobeying. So my friends, very easy for us to point our fingers at Peter sometimes and 
oh, Peter, can't believe you did that. Can't believe you said that, Peter. And then we, we go and do the same sort of thing. So we need to be as hard on ourselves as we often are on Peter. Uh, so just, just remind yourself that uh, when you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, that means something very important. So don't go and disobey his word and then resist his leading in your life. Because you're allowing, when the process, you're allowing your flesh and Satan to have the victory, not God. Another example of we can, of we, how we can see Satan as a, as a tool of providence in the crucifixion here is, number two, Satan entered into Judas. In fact, the Bible says not just once, but Satan entered into Judas twice. Look at John chapter 13, verse 1. John 13, verse 1. John 13, verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Just stop there a moment. So, Satan's already had an influence, a bad influence on Judas, accomplished God's purposes. Now look at verse 27. In the same context here, look at verse 27. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, that is, he'd taken it from Jesus, The Bible says here, verse 27, Satan entered into him, into Judas. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Judas probably thought he's in control. But even as Judas played willingly into the hands of Satan, Satan is is thinking he's probably in charge as well. But, but Satan played unintentionally into the divine hands of providence. This was prophesied that this would happen, that Jesus would be betrayed by a friend. We just read that earlier. So Judas is fulfilling prophecy. Satan is fulfilling Old Testament scripture in the process. Number four, moving on to the fourth main heading. I want us to think of little more deeply about the the work of Christ, in particular uh, the crucifixion and what what Jesus was accomplishing there. Let's think about God's circumstantial providences. Many of the providential details of the story uh, of the Gospel account here are, are really technically unnecessary to the ultimate outcome of the events. Uh, we don't need to know them, but God puts them in there. It's it, And these details are God's just extras, if you will, that have been added for His own glory. It's kind of like the bonus stuff. You know, if you ever buy a DVD of a movie and you, you know, you don't need all that bonus stuff. But it is interesting, isn't it? That's kind of like some of these details that God gives in the Scriptures just are amazing. So let's look at some of them. Number one, the timing of the crucifixion is amazing. Because look at this, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, Christ, notice what Christ is called here. He's called our Passover lamb. 
Huh, that's interesting. Our Passover lamb. Well, if you know anything about your Old Testament, the Israelites were told way, way back in Exodus in Egypt, remember, to put blood on the doorpost, on the top of the of the door, on the sides of the door. They were to slaughter a lamb and put that blood there. And God said, if you do that, the death angel will pass over your house. Passover. And so the Passover started at that event. And that was all foreshadowing the Passover lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So God brought all things to a head at the most symbolically appropriate moment that was uh, on the entire Jewish calendar. This was something they celebrated every year. <laughs> and so ever since the exodus out of Egypt, the Israelites waited for, for centuries and centuries and centuries for Christ to be sacrificed as the Lamb of God whose blood would secure protection from death and deliverance from their sin. As they shed a, the, the blood of the Lamb, it never ultimately dealt with their sin, did it? It was just kind of a symbolic, temporary covering of their sin. It never actually dealt with their sin nature. It was looking forward to, it was by faith I do this, looking forward to the Passover Lamb. So the timing was crucial. They should have seen it. This is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the Messiah. But many missed it. Let's look at another one that was quite interesting. Caiaphas's council is also a foreshadowing of Jesus. Look at John chapter 11. John 11, verse 45 So this is Caiaphas's council. Remember, Caiaphas is a is a religious leader of Israel at the time of Jesus. So here's this discussion. Look at this, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, some of them, sorry, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they'd made plans to put him to death. So as you read in that text, the Jewish leadership here debating, what are they going to do about Jesus? The high priest Caiaphas 
advised his companions that it's better that one man should die for the people. Interesting comment. <laughs> See, Caiaphas was speaking from just a, a, a purely earthly, practical, pragmatic, political standpoint. Right? So he, he's just thinking of their position, their authority, their, their wealth, their money. He thought it was necessary to destroy Jesus in order to avoid a Jewish uprising. And in the process, of course, the Romans didn't like that. And the Romans would punish their nation if that happened. However, unintentionally, it's interesting, Caiaphas was actually, notice the scripture says, Caiaphas is actually prophesying a profound theological truth. That Jesus should die for the nation. So God used a very unlikely spokesman. I assume he's an unbeliever. But nevertheless, God uses him as a spokesman to proclaim what would become one of the fundamentals of the faith. Wow. One of those fundamentals is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That Christ would take our place. He's a substitute. He died in my place. He died in your place. <laughs> Amazing that God would use someone like this. A man who was, who was a rebel against Christ, and against God, and use him to make these kind of statements. Well, let's, let's move on. We see another one in the exchange of Barabbas. Is, uh, is another interesting one. Look at Matthew 27, verse 26. Matthew 27, verse 26. So there's this, this discussion. Are we going to let Jesus go or are we let Barabbas go? So here it is. Verse 26. Then he, that Pilate, that is, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So, the exchange of Christ for Barabbas is a beautiful picture it's a providential picture of the substitutionary nature of Christ's work and our own salvation. You, in case you're not getting this, let me explain. See, here's how it works. The sinless Lamb of God died literally instead of and in the place of an admitted guilty sinner. The Bible says that Barabbas was guilty. Uh, he's described, uh, you know, some... Describe him as a robber, a thief, maybe even a murderer. So the guy is clearly guilty. He is a sinner. But yet he's let go. And the one who is sinless dies in his place. Beautiful picture of what happens for all believers in Christ. Moving on, number four. The crown of thorns is often overlooked. But look what Matthew 27, verse 29 says. Well, let's back up to verse 28, actually. Verse 28 says, They stripped him, Jesus, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! 
do you see the irony in this? They're calling him the king of the Jews. They're putting this fake crown on his head. They're mocking him. Who are they mocking? The creator of the universe is crowned with the very curse that he inflicted on the earth way back in Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? By the way, that curse, as I said, mentioned Genesis 3. Here it is on the screen for you. Genesis 3.17. Curse is mentioned here to Adam. And here's what God says. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns. Underline thorns. Notice that's part of the curse. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So every time you see a thorn or a thistle, may it remind you of the curse. Every time you get poked by one of those nasty little things, gorse or wherever it comes from, remind yourself, I'm a sinner. <laughs> this world is under a curse, but praise God for Jesus who bore the curse in your place. So he wore the curse because a, because a curse for us took place. Even though you and I deserve the curse, he doesn't. He bore it. Well, the Bible understood this. Paul understood this. and In fact, Paul says here in, in Galatians 3.13, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He became the curse for us. So symbolically, you see that even in the crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head. Interesting, isn't it? Number five, there's great significance in the crucifixion as well. A lot of providence going on here. Look at John 18. John 18, 31. John 18, verse 31. So here's Jesus before Pilate. Verse 31, John 18 Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Do you think crucifixion was an accident? No way. The death of Christ by any means other than crucifixion would have marked the failure of explicit prophecy. It would have undermined the reliability of the Bible, of, of God's very Word. So Christ had to be crucified. Why? Well, there's several reasons for that. First of all, this kind of death was pictured in the Old Testament. The second reason is Christ specifically and repeatedly predicted that His death would take place by crucifixion. By the way, the Old Testament law talks about crucifixion. Here's just one example from Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. Here's what it says. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Oh, (laughs) ironically, the intent of God was to attach to Jesus a, a very nasty, ugly stigma. It was a curse for a Jew to hang on a tree. And that's the very thing that God chose, the very instrument that God chose to hang on. Again, Galatians 3, verse 13. Look at this. Here's what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written. (laughs) Where do you think he's quoting this part from? Deuteronomy 21. (laughs) Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Christ was cursed. Number six. Pilate's inscription is providential. Pilate's only inscription that he has hanging over Jesus' head there on the cross is providential. Look at John 19, verse 17. Verse 17. So he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 20 says, Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. <laughs> but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So, notice the Pilate's inscription. According to custom, by the way, according to history and and the culture of that time, a sign proclaimed the criminal's name as well as the particular charge against that criminal. It was uh, carried sometimes by a herald or worn around the criminal's neck to declare why was this person being crucified. So everybody in Jerusalem would know why the criminal was being crucified. The Bible tells us the full inscription written by Pilate mentions Jesus' name, where he's from. He's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. He is the king of the Jews. So the official public testimony that was penned by Rome's representative was actually an admission of who Jesus really was. Jesus was being put to death because he is the king of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Only if they would have recognized it and really believed it. Some did, praise God, but not all. It's also providential. Number seven, we see that Jesus died at midnight. Well, sorry, it was noon, sorry. 
but at noon it appeared to be midnight. Look what Matthew 27 says. Matthew 27. Verse 45. <clears throat> so when you see the sixth hour, that means it was noon, because they, they started their day 6 a.m., so 6 a.m. till noon would be six hours, the sixth hour. So look at Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <coughs> so here it is, it's noon. The sun should be high above everybody. High above the cross, shining down bright part of the day. But what do we have? We have darkness. There's great symbolism even in that. Uh, the darkness of sin and, the, and, and separation from God. God's judgment, His wrath is poured out on His Son as He becomes our substitutionary atonement. I find it ironic that the one who is called the son of righteousness in the Bible, the one who is called the light of the world, should suffer and die in darkness. Isn't that interesting? Very providential. Another very providential thing that takes place during this time is the temple veil ripped in two. Look what Matthew says here, chapter 27, verse 51. Verse 51, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. So here we have the very moment of Christ's death, that massive thick veil in the temple ripping in two. That veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and it was torn open. Now remember, this is Passover time. <laughs> so there would have been a lot of activity taking place in Jerusalem, a lot of sacrifices taking place during this time. But the Bible says it wasn't just merely torn, but it was actually ripped by God Himself from top to bottom. Jewish scholars believe, by the way, that veil was approximately 60 feet tall. So, that's about, by the way, that's approximately the height of the tallest part of this, this room here. So imagine a, a veil around that height. So, we're, we're talking about 20 meters approximately high. It was woven from a very heavy material. Uh, a lot of people think it would have been uh, as thick as the palm of a man's hand. Very thick material. And it was also a very significant act. 
by divine law, only one man, who was the high priest, was allowed past that veil, and he was only allowed into the Holy of Holies one time out of the entire year. It was on the Day of Atonement. The presence of God was off limits for the other 364 days in the calendar year. And this was a great object lesson. See, the Holy Spirit was teaching Israel, and everybody for that fact, that access into the presence of God was strictly limited. But Hebrews tells us Jesus is superior. Look what Hebrews says, chapter 9, verse 6 here. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into that second, that is the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So, Hebrews shows the the Old Testament way. And so that veil ends up becoming a symbol of the physical body of Jesus Christ. The Bible says so. So that when the body of Christ was torn through His own death on the cross... The veil of the temple was torn at the same time. What did that event signify, though? It it did signify something. Well, it signified that we are now, uh, well, I should let me put it this way. We now have access. Because there was only before only that one person allowed in one time of the year into that Holy of Holies. But now we have a personal access, it's a full access. It's a free access into the very presence of God, and it's done through the sacrifice of Christ. Again, Hebrews 10 tells us this very thing here. Look at this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest... Over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. By the way, notice the connection there between Christ's flesh or His body and that curtain, the veil, was ripped in two. So now, because of Jesus, because His body was was there for us, uh, we now have this blessed assurance So, what's the point of all these scriptures? (laughs) What's the point? Well, the invisible hand of providence, while God doesn't have a literal hand and you don't, you may not see it, like, uh, like it seems like Daniel saw a hand writing on the wall, you may not see that invisible hand of providence is nevertheless behind these events, even behind the, the worst murder to ever take place, the crucifixion of Christ. What is it doing? It's guiding, sometimes restraining. It's sometimes directing people. Sometimes it's permitting people to do dastardly deeds. Men and demons and carrying out their own will are 
could only do that which would carry out God's will. They think they're accomplishing their purposes, but in the process, God's accomplishing His will. And I love this quote from one of my teachers in, in uni, Dr. Stuart Custard. He said this, quote, The death of Christ was not an accident. It was a major part of the divine plan to redeem sinful mankind. The fact that God knew what was going to happen did not remove the responsibility of those human beings who freely violated the law of God to kill an innocent person. God's purpose was redemption. Man's purpose was murder. The two purposes intersect at the cross, and the result is salvation for all who will believe. End quote question for you, my friends. Here's a very important question. If God can so sovereignly control what seems to be chaos and hatred, is it possible that that same God could lose control over the affairs of your life? Some of you are shaking your head no. And that's the appropriate response. No way. The answer is no way. Absolutely not. The Bible assures us that He is is providentially and lovingly in control of our circumstances as He was in the circumstances of Jesus Christ. I love the way the songwriter put it. Let me just sing for you the third verse of the song, This is My Father's World. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. You see that? Well said. We often lose sight of what God is doing. Very easy to do. So not only is God in control of your life, He understands what you're going through. He understands what you're going through. So yes, my friend, God understands your experiences. And I don't mean just theoretically, by the way. Just Don't just think, okay, yeah, okay, God's an all-knowing God, so He theoretically knows what I'm going through. No. See, Jesus experienced real life. He is a man. He is the God-man. So Jesus Christ became the God-man, two natures in one person now forever. And, And he personally suffered, but he's still God as well. He's man and God. God wasn't a helpless onlooker, And by the way, that adds an immeasurable depth of meaning to the experience. He wasn't just a helpless onlooker. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew he was fulfilling the Old Testament Scriptures. He chose his own death to fulfill those Scriptures. So Christ's own suffering could have been avoided, but it was not. It was voluntary. And my friends, don't forget... It was for you. I remember when I was very young where this became personal. 
I had heard the gospel many times growing up. But at some point, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see, oh yeah, okay, I knew Christ had died and suffered, dealt with the penalty of sin and all that. I knew that. But when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to this glorious truth that Jesus took my place, <laughs> I deserve to die on the cross. Jesus took my place. Okay, this became personal. Wow. Okay, that's not just someone else dying on the cross, but it actually means something for me. It means something for me. And not just my own salvation, but that glorious truth goes on to have a, 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 an eternal effect on every believer who has ever put their faith in Christ. <laughs> the Lamb was crucified by God's will. God chose to crush His Son. Read Isaiah chapter 53. It was God's will to crush His Son. And so Jesus willingly, voluntarily, went to the cross. The good news is, we don't have to. Because... That's what propitiation means. Propitiation means Jesus becomes the wrath absorber. Kind of like a shock. Bears the brunt of the bumps on the road. Jesus takes God's wrath and absorbs it for you in your place. I deserve to die, but Jesus died for me. <laughs> what a beautiful truth. And now, by God's grace, we can live a life that is glorifying and pleasing to Him. May God enable us to do so. Let's pray.